This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. This is Sex and Science Hour. Right on time. Oh, yeah. So, well, sort of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> we don't know when this will be released. We kind of know when we're recording it. Should we ruin the surprise? By it's talking? ahead of the game, I'll say that. Okay, it's ahead of the game. We'll keep the mystery. We'll do a nice tease. This is episode 19. I love a nice tease. Yeah, we've almost made it to 20 here, Brian. Phenomenal. We almost made it out of our teens here. Somehow unscathed. That's when everything gets exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's absolutely right. And... Uh, <laughs> I think today we're going to start out with some science articles. How about that? We're going to switch things up a little bit. Yeah, let's just start off with some sex or science. Science is good. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be getting to sex in segment two. So awesome. Stay tuned. You're going to want to see this for sure. <laughs> hear, hear this. You're going to want to hear this. Uh, this is a podcast. I keep forgetting. It's not video. And good thing it's not because you should see what we're doing in the studio. Oh, boy. If only you knew. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just kidding. And we just revealed we're nudists last week. <laughs> we did. We certainly <laughs> did. Uh, people's minds are really going right now. But Woo. recently, Brian, there was a, an animal that was found in New Zealand that was thought to be extinct for millions of years. Oh, but boy. But it's not actually gone. They oh, can't boy. get rid of it. It's like, did you ever hear that old song? There used to be this old like short film that used to play on Nickelodeon. I don't know if you remember this. It's called The Cat Came Back. It's about this guy that, you know, this little yellow cat shows up on his doorstep. <laughs> and then like the cat, you know, at first he's like, oh, it's so cute. And then it starts ripping up his couch and destroying his house. And he tries to take it out and leave it in the woods. But it comes back, follows him back. He tries to drive it away in his car. It comes back. He tries to. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like such an insulting comparison to a species that has done so well sticking around. Yeah, oh. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. Okay, I'll give you but that. But that is a funny video. I'm aware of it. Oh, and it has this really catchy song, The Cat Came yeah, d- Back. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. The very next oh, day, the cat came back. They thought he was a goner, but the cat came back. The very next day, he just couldn't stay away. Her album will be out on iTunes <laughs> at some point. That's right. <laughs> All right, enough of that. Somebody's going to like clip out that segment and I'm going to be famous in a way that I don't want to be famous. That's but, right. You know, we bear our souls on this show and there's we probably no have said <laughs> so many embarrassing things that there's just no shortage of them. So hopefully they'll just all get buried and confused within each other. And uh, <laughs> Oh, come on. Politicians can say that, oh, yeah, we're going to leave this country or we're oh, going to well, do this. And then oh, they never do. And they get away with it. So. We will never be politicians. Yeah, and that's I feel a like thing. I can say whatever I want. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they keep getting voted for. Nobody stops voting for them. You know, good so thing it's we're like, not oh, relying on the political process. Good so, thing. Uh, you can vote with your podcast plays, I suppose, <laughs> in a sense. But uh no, so there was this animal that was found. It's kind of a boring animal. Like, I was really expecting it to be, like, one of those elephant birds or, like, one of those really cool extinct animals where it's, like, a giant thing with feathers or a giant thing with claws and teeth or, right. like, some big fish. You know, you like to talk about this fish, the coelacanth, yes. right? I think we talked about it on, like, the very first show of Sex and Science. Yeah, Hour, when I was we? trying to empathize with Christians, not insult them, I was trying to empathize oh, with them. Oh, yeah, and then we got that email saying, you shouldn't talk about this. Right. Uh, <laughs> but the, the That's what you get for being nice. Anyway, go ahead. But the coelacanth is like this fossil leftover dinosaur type yeah, it fish. Yeah, same thing. They thought it was gone. 
for millions of years, and then suddenly they find more of these things. And, and this is like a big, gnarly-looking fish. And it looks like it has arms. That's why yeah. they really thought that it was part of the evolutionary process. It's like, okay, so this is part of how man left the... Or how... How man eventually how evolved. Left how the life oceans, left right? the ocean. Yeah, not man. How life left the oceans. Exactly. We're, we're, we just are right. completing each other's sentences, Brian. We're right. <laughs> now, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, or at least according to scientists, is that there are some species that evolve slower. That evolution does not have a consistent pace. Okay, and so genetically, they can they can keep their little knobbies in their arms and whatever for, oh, little, for million, knobbies. little knobbies for <laughs> for millions of years. Uh, that's a technical term, by the way. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so it really is. Uh, but uh, but what's this creature? Well, this is some kind of worm. You know, it's like a it's like a sea worm. You know, like it's one of those. It's a tube, and then it comes out, and then when it's scared, it goes boop, and it goes back into the tube. It's like a tube worm. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's not like it doesn't have eyes, it doesn't have arms or legs or anything like that, but it was thought to be extinct for millions of years, but they're actually hanging out in New Zealand. So I guess the point of this is like, what other so-called extinct life is actually here? It's just that nobody's found it. And another question I have is like, how do you know when a species is actually extinct? It's hard yeah. to prove a negative like that, you know? Yeah, it, it's true. And I, I guess a lot of, I mean, I think things like the dodo bird are pretty clearly extinct. Like there'd be places where I suppose you would see them. Well, if they were shy enough and living in such a remote area. Yeah, but I they suppose. specifically, they have to, the dodo bird by its very nature has to live on coastlines. And oh, I don't okay. think there's really a coastline that, I mean, because it, it, it's a dodo bird. It, it just, it it gets the food that comes to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't hunt. It doesn't go after its own. Yeah, not known uh, for their intelligence. Huh? Right. That's the dodo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they just let the boats run them over. And, you know, so I guess a lot of species, though, other than that, would have to be called MIA. Not, not maybe that, that needs to happen. Yeah. I mean, if, if the frequency of a certain animal is so low in the wild that humans are not seeing them, then maybe it's hard for them to see another one that they can reproduce with. Yeah. That's the opposite sex or whatever. Yeah. You know, I mean, and something actually, a really interesting point that a good friend of ours brought up to me just recently is that, you know, there's parts of North America, of the Americas, because they were settled so late in evolutionary history, in the history of the planet. There's parts of America that maybe no human has ever actually stepped on. Wow. And I think that's, you know, when he said it, I was like, you know, I think you might be right. Even though, you know, the, the time frame, you know, coming over from the Bering Strait and all that stuff, even though some of that recent findings, uh, archaeological findings may be pushing that date back a bit, mm. a bit, I still think that might be accurate. Well, so. you know, the landscape is constantly changing, but there is just so much land on this planet. You know, oh, like, yeah. pe- I know people really experience this feeling of crowding, especially if they live in cities or they live in an area like San Francisco or London where the housing is like really scarce. You know, everybody says it's a housing crisis. Right. They feel really cramped, but there is just so much livable and non-livable land on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I mean, there's some real mysteries as to some things that have been around uh, or that may have been around up until very recently. You mentioned the elephant bird. This Mm -hmm. bird was like 14 feet long or tall, however you want to call it. Uh, It was huge. Yeah. This is something you'd expect out of the Triassic or out of the Jurassic period. Yeah, it almost seems dinosaur-like from the description. Right. And speaking of dinosaurs, this is a case I bring up often, okay, uh, is that, you know, in Montana... 
uh, about 20 years ago, they find a a really altogether T-Rex, you know, skeleton. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this thing still has juicy bone marrow. Now, myself. I wouldn't say it's juicy, but bone marrow nonetheless, right? Right. Okay. (laughs) It wasn't fossilized. Yeah. And so here's my thing with that is that you're talking about what all the rest of science says, all the changes that the earth has gone through in temperatures. And you're telling me that somehow for 65 million years, those bones still have bone marrow. Bull crap. There's no (laughs) way. Yeah. In my, in my opinion. Now people want to call me wrong or whatever, you know, say, Oh, you can't question science. Well, that's the, that's the very heart of science is to question things. And that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's that, that one of those still has weird mysteries. Yeah, and some scientists have tried to write it off, saying, "Well, it's not really bone marrow." No, look, man, it's bone marrow. You, you know what I mean? There's, yeah. there's no, there's really not a whole lot of questioning to be done here, on as far as that goes, as far as the identification of it. Okay, but the question is, is they how? You're telling me Montana stayed frozen long enough to where that stuff didn't go away? Sixty-five million years? We're not even talking. We're not talking a thousand years. We're talking sixty-five million years. Yeah, it's weird. Where the T-Rex is here until recently. But Brian, the Earth is only 6,000 years old. Come on. Oh, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. That was kind of mean, but (laughs) (laughs) I just had to make the joke because we're ending the segment here. Although there was another article I wanted to talk about. Alien life to be discovered within 20 years, says a top astronomer. That ain't happening. Real quick, agree or disagree, no? Disagree. Fermi paradox uh, and... uh, 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 Great filter. Yeah, there you go. You got it in. All right, there is more coming up here on Sex and Science Hour. There's sex next. You'll want to stay tuned. Don't miss it. I love sex. Don't we all? This is Sex and Science Hour. We're on the second segment. Oh, that was kind of a tongue twister. This is yeah. my vocal warm-up. See, okay. Well, I don't if know you're going to talk about sex, tongue twisting is going to go on. I, I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, people may not know this, but I'm a voiceover artist, and I spend most of my day talking and doing voiceovers, which is a, an awesome career. I actually changed careers. You may hear that I'm Dr. Stephanie, and that's because I have a PhD in biochemistry, and I also went to medical school for two years. Um, did not continue down that career path, but now, yeah, and so I decided to change and become a voiceover artist, and I'm really happy with that. But I've been incorporating sort of vocal warm-ups into my routine recently because I've been feeling like sometimes my voice gets a little fried by the end of the week. Right. So I've been doing warm-ups. So there's like, you know, you hum for 10 seconds, then you do like, mm, mm, you know, that kind of <laughs> thing. And then you go, and then you go, oh, man. Sit on the speaker. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. It worked for Howard Stern. It worked for know. Howard Stern. Boy, uh, it was a hot scene. Man, I remember that movie. <laughs> Uh, so the point of that was, this was my vocal warm up saying sex and science hour. And I don't even remember what we said, but it was a tongue twister. So there we go. All right. Full circle. Oh boy. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So we got a listener email, Brian, to our email address, which is show at sex and science hour.com, which goes to both me and Brian, by the way, shared email address. (laughs) Right, Brian, we know how we feel about those. But anyway, this person um, had an email about sexual incompatibility. 
And I wanted to talk about it because I think this is a silent suffering that a lot of people face. Okay. So I'm just going to summarize this email because it was actually rather length- lengthy and the person also wanted to be anonymous. So I just want to keep them anonymous. But basically, it's a guy. He was bullied a lot in school, had kind of a rough um, childhood, thought that nobody would ever want to have sex with him and developed an issue, uh, c- which he connected with that in his description of not being able to reach an orgasm. It would take him about an hour to do that, and he really needed a lot of visual stimulation, as well as kind of being alone. Um, He met a woman, they started dating, and they fell in love, and they, you know, he said uh, he knows that we're not fans of the whole no sex before marriage thing, but they really gave it some thought, and they decided that they wanted their relationship to be based on love and not distracted by sex and so they didn't have sex for three years that they were dating sure then they got married and i guess at that point it sort of became evident that um, she also had some sexual issues too she had been uh, a, a victim of sexual abuse and she had pain during sex that was probably related to that unresolved kind of trauma that she had experienced and so you know, he's having trouble reaching orgasm. She doesn't want to have sex. She's having pain. And so they basically kind of didn't really have sex. He said that they had six positive sexual experiences in the 10 years that they have been married. So he started um, looking at porn because that was the thing that helped him get off. And he didn't mm-hmm. want to kind of bother his wife because obviously this was kind of a sore issue for her. She didn't want to do it. But she became really um, upset about him looking at porn. So they tried to go to therapy. And the therapist basically sided with her, called him an evil guy, said he was screwing everything up and he needed to stop looking at porn. And um, he said, you know, he didn't think he should have to do that because he's married to this woman. He's not having sex with anyone else. Uh, This is the only way he can get off. So why not? Um, And then they kind of just beat him down the therapist and his wife and said no no you got to stop doing it and you're you're bad you're the bad guy right and so he felt really kind of um damaged by that but the issue is still not resolved they're still kind of um tense arguing about that she doesn't want him to look at porn but she also doesn't want to have sex and he's got this issue too and um so he says basically he says he thinks that we advocate um having sex with whoever we want or whoever you want uh i would say that's not really accurate (laughs) not entirely um but he said he doesn't want to do that he doesn't want to break his promise to her he wants to be faithful yada yada um and he doesn't also believe that he could find anyone to have sex with him and cheat on his wife anyway even if he were to want to do that um so his dilemma is does he have to choose between ever having sex again or getting divorced from her and giving up on the love that they have because they do apparently still have a loving relationship. So I just, this was a heartbreaking kind yeah, of email. Wow. I feel really sad. There's a lot going on in there in that relationship, you know, right. it sounds like. And he said, he said it may sound unbelievable, uh, but it's actually totally believable. No, it sounds, yeah. I've yeah. heard a lot of stories like this of just sexual incompatibility um in various advice podcasts and stuff i'm a fan of dan savage i listen to his podcast a sex advice podcast and you know he's got a lot of people calling in with this very issue every single day and sometimes you know sometimes people are just sexually incompatible my feeling is that if you're in a romantic relationship with someone then if 
at least one of the people wants sex to be a part of that, then that's an important need for them. And if that's not going to happen, then they're not going to feel happy in that relationship. And sometimes there's no easy solution for that. You know, you you have to kind of um, maybe round up. Like, it's a difficult choice, right? He loves this person. Right. But at the same time, sex is not working. So are they going to be able to work on the sex? And they did try that once and had a negative experience with this therapist that they went to. Or are they going to um, just kind of silently deal with it, you know, in in a way that maybe he has been doing by kind of like getting his release by looking at the porn and hoping his wife doesn't find out. But then they're kind of hiding that from each other. I mean, what or do they get divorced and try to find someone else? I mean, what do they do? And that's really up to him. We, we're not going to tell him what to do. Uh, but, you know, I can see that there are needs there that are not being met. And I would maybe suggest and we've got an article here that I want to read to um, kind of talk about this issue. I would maybe suggest that there are some cultural factors that really discourage people from talking about sex and thinking about sex in such a way that can help them address issues like this maybe even before they get into a relationship like a marriage. So we'll talk about that. But did you have any thoughts on this email, Brian? Yeah. You know, first off, I, w- I just want to say quick that uh, there's nothing wrong with porn. Okay. Uh, I mean, there just isn't that, that, that whole thing has to go away. Uh, I just want to say that I think that, like you said, there's these cultural norms of what sex is. And I think there's a real problem with that in that. And it's even in the email where love and sex are getting separated. Mm-hmm. And I feel it feels that, like there's a there's a conflict between them. Yeah, right, right. And I feel that sex now in this kind of relationship, you can have sex for sex sake. That's fine. OK, but I think in the context of this relationship, love and sex are the, the same thing. They're, they're not separate because sex is when you let all the walls down with another person. And, you know, just like the Bible says, you're one flesh. OK. And that, that's it, you know, one mind, one flesh, the whole thing. And that's that's what that's, you know. So I think if you think of it as something separate, as it's not an act of love, which is like, it sounds like that's happening both ways, maybe, a little bit. Um, I, you know, that, that, might be, that might be an issue. But for him, okay, maybe for him, he would like sex and love to be kind of integrated. But do you think that sex is always an expression of love? Because I don't. I think no, it can that, be no, just no, a that, physical release yeah, sometimes. That's right. what I was just saying, or that's what I said, is that, you know, sometimes it can just be sex for its own sake. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be about love. Okay. Yeah, it can be so many different things, I think. You sure, know. sure. But in, in, in a relationship where you are, you know, you're wanting it to be completely about love, sex is, is just part and parcel. It is an expression of the love. Of yeah. the love. Okay. And, and I think maybe if that, if it's looked at from that aspect and also keep in mind that sex is not just putting a penis in a vagina. Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, that's never even necessary. Sex is about a whole ton of erogenous zones. Again, it's about bearing everything, letting down all the guards. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's what sex in a relationship like this is about, in my opinion. Uh, and so maybe if it gets looked at from that aspect, maybe that can open up some eyes. Well, I have this article that I really wanted to read that just reminded me so much of this email. And maybe it'll be helpful to the listener who wrote in, maybe not. Um, but, you know, I think I think we could just read it because it's going to be helpful to somebody. Perhaps the first step in fixing this problem, if there is a solution that will work for you, is maybe expanding your mind a little bit um, to a question some of the cultural norms about sex that were taught and whether those are working for you. 
So let me read this. It's called. It's actually called Four Lies the Church Taught Me About Sex, and it's written by a woman. Okay, real, um, real quick. I mean, done. what I just described is being, you know, sex is being a separate thing. That's not being taught by the church. I think that's being taught by secular and, you know, what some would call a hypersexual society. Mm-hmm. So I'm not blaming religion for that one. But yeah, let's do this. It's a great article, nonetheless. Anyway, so she she says, this is by Lily Dunn. She says, I've heard people say that growing up as an evangelical meant they never talked about sex. This wasn't my experience. I grew up in the thick of evangelical purity culture, and we talked about sex a lot. We just spent all of that time talking about how and why not to have it. (laughs) <laughs> and this is something that you've said before, Brian, that there's a, if the, this focus on abstinence, they're still talking about sex. They're just, don't do it, don't do it. Oh, yeah. It's it, still focused on sex. Yeah, if you're wearing a ring that's all about you not having sex, you're always <laughs> thinking about sex. Right. Yeah. <laughs> she says, as someone who waited until I was married to have sex, I was assured that I would be guaranteed an easy and rewarding sex life. When reality turned out to be different, I was disappointed and dis- disillusioned. Only through gradual conversations with other married friends did I realize I wasn't alone. I started to wonder if maybe the expectations themselves were wrong. Maybe what I'd been told or inferred about postmarital sex simply wasn't true. Here are four of the biggest lies about sex I believed before marriage. And th- by the way, this is called Four Lies the Church Taught Me, but it's I, I think, it, at least in America, it's beyond just the church, it's in culture. Sure. These these ideas are in culture they don't just come from religion like right. they're they they started with religion i think but they've seeped out into all aspects of culture so examining them um is never a bad thing right do they hold up to some scrutiny and some questioning let's see number 1 any and all physical contact is like a gateway drug to sex once in high school she says i attended a big christian youth conference one night one of the chaperones addressed the girls girls we have noticed some very inappropriate touching going on. The inappropriate touching she meant turned out to be two high school couples in the youth group, drumroll please, holding hands. Oh, God. Very inappropriate touching. They're holding hands. This woman was deadly serious, says Lily. She said, I know it may not seem like a big deal to you, but hand-holding leads to other things. This is like a gateway drug. This is ridiculous. I think I've said this on this show in the past. Uh, Hugging should be the norm, not handshakes. In my opinion. uh, Well, like if that's if it's off limits, you know, if holding hands is off limits. Right. Like, what are you going to do with that when you finally get to hold hands? Well, that's the thing. They're creating the very problem they're trying to solve Mm -hmm. by making touch this anathema. Yeah. Okay. You're actually making it in an you know an exciting thing in and of itself. Yeah, it's a forbidden fruit, right? Yeah. And it's even something like holding hands becomes yeah. uh, like really erotic because it's you, forbidden, right? Because yeah. you can't do it. And that's so nuts. I mean, talk about religion. I mean, even Paul says, you know, uh, in the Bible, he says we greet each other with a holy kiss. Mm. I mean, they they kissed. <laughs> what? Do you, come on. Uh, and I love how the, the girls are being named as sort of like the gatekeepers for this. Like, girls, make sure you don't let your boyfriend hold your hand or let, don't let those boys touch your hands. It could lead to other things. <laughs> They're putting it all on them. I'm sure the guys aren't getting a lecture about holding their hands of, of the other girls, yeah. you know? <laughs> you know, I mean, how do people greet each other in Latin countries? Kiss on the cheek. A kiss on the cheek. Yeah. Oh, my God. Th- those those countries must be falling apart. Well, they are the cesspool so of sin. <laughs> No, no. They're the very heart no. of religion in the planet, actually. Uh, 
She said, I heard similar things from parents, teachers, church leaders, and books. In my church, it was not unusual for people not only to pledge to save sex until marriage, but to save their first kiss for their wedding day. I already commented on that. Don't start the engine if you aren't ready to drive the car. And other similar metaphors warned me that any physical contact was like a slippery slope straight into the jaws of fornication. No, start the engine because if you don't start the engine at least once a week, (laughs) the car won't turn on. She says, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, and we're going to s- s- abridge this a little bit because we got to um, keep this going. But number two, the second lie was if you wait until you're married to have sex, God will reward you with mind blowing sex and a magical wedding night. I think this is a common myth. People think if they wait, it's going to be so good. That is a lie that gets told to people to get them to wait. How can it be so good if no one knows what to do? Well, that's a great question. Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and not and only nobody, not only that, but nobody talks about it. Yeah, not <laughs> nobody's only not that, even allowed to hold hands. <laughs> right. Just, just contemplate this for a second, okay? I mean, that's for, if this is how you want to do it, like the emailer did, okay. But just contemplate the fact that you're not having sex before marriage because of the threat of hell. How messed up is how? If this is such a wonderful thing, why does it have the threat of hell behind it? Mm. that's that's a but it suddenly becomes magical and special once you get married oh right yeah it's like this really strange dichotomy if you're used to thinking of sex as the sinful bad thing and then suddenly right after you get married it's supposed to be mind-blowing and sexy and awesome and perfectly okay no that guilt and shame really stays with you it's it's programmed in there it's you're used to thinking about it a certain way that's not just going to go away as soon as the wedding bells are done ringing yeah so she basically said that on her wedding night sex just didn't work they didn't know what to do. Right. And uh, it just didn't feel good. And she blamed herself. She felt like a failure of a wife. Now, how oh, how sad is that? That's so sad. Myth number three, girls don't care about sex. And yes, that is a myth. <laughs> <laughs> As a teenager and young adult, I cannot count the times I heard something uh, to this effect. Boys are very visual and sexual. So even though you aren't thinking about sex, you need to be careful because you are responsible for not making them stumble, I guess, on their path of virginity <laughs> oh wow yeah let's blame an entire the girls gender. are responsible <laughs> and uh and she says now let's disregard how degrading this is toward men and uh, yeah it paints them as these out of control freak dogs that can't right. control their sexuality or keep it in their pants which isn't true either you know that's disrespectful to men for sure um and then it paints women as these cold virginal people who don't have a sexual thought in their bodies and that's totally not true yeah. Um, she said, you know, basically she realized, yes, girls, even Christian girls do think about sex. Many girls, even Christian girls like sex. And this doesn't make you a freak. It makes you natural. Uh, God created us, she says, both men and women as sexual beings. Enjoying sex makes you a human being created by God in the image of God with the capacity and desire to love physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually and sexually. Absolutely. Myth four, when you get married, you will immediately, and this is something that we just talked about here, Brian, when you get married, you will immediately be able to fully express yourself sexually without guilt or shame. Many Christians have spent years from the day they hit puberty until their wedding day, focusing their energy on keeping their sex drives in check. Then in the space of a few hours, they're expected to stop feeling like their sexuality is something they must carefully control and instead be able to express it freely. (laughs) And not only that, but express it freely with another person. Many of us have programmed guilt into ourselves. This is how we keep ourselves in check during our dating relationships. And that red light feeling we train ourselves to obey doesn't just go away. 
because we've spoken some vows and signed some papers. It took me several months to stop having that sick-to-my-stomach guilty feeling every time I was together with my husband. Not, ev- not everyone experiences this, but for the people who do, it's terribly isolating. Once again, we're experiencing something our churches and communities never acknowledged as a possibility. We feel alone and broken and filled with a profound sense that this isn't the way it's meant to be. How yeah, sad is that? It's, it's so really... sad. And you know, I actually, I really, I don't blame religion for a lot of this because uh, I, I, you know, other thing I know I've said before is that through the Middle Ages, sex was had in the church because it was the clean place. Like there was actually an understanding of what this act was and that it wasn't an ugly thing in front of God or whatever, uh, you know, but I guess only if you're married, right? Um, I just... Yeah, there, there's. I feel like there's a real misunderstanding of. I mean, th- this article seems to understand quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, of the truth. The author says at the end that she doesn't regret waiting until she was married to have sex, but she does think there's something seriously wrong with the way that the conversation has been handled. And I agree. I, I concur. It's great to question these myths. And to the emailer who wrote in anonymous. I really feel for you, buddy. Yeah, same here. Same here. All I think we can do right now is give you some compassion, and we've got plenty of that for you. Yeah. And you're going to have to decide how you want to work out this problem. And I hope this is helpful in some way. There's more coming up here on Sex and Science Hour. Stay tuned. This is Sex and Science Hour, Seven Three. Uh, still got nothing. Hey, Brian, what's your problem with the Bitcoin Foundation? <laughs> I mean, seriously, what's your problem with it, man? Uh, it'd be a, yeah. You got a you got an email that was addressed. It was addressed to me, but it was also kind of addressed at you. Okay. Because you've been a vocal critic, and I have too. I mean, I've said oh, yes. some stuff about the Bitcoin Foundation. We have some said some stuff on our show about them, but I, you know, I thought this might be a good way to bring some Bitcoin into this show. Um, so let's have at it here, shall we? Yeah. Uh, someone wrote in who is, by the way, a member of the Bitcoin. He's involved with the Bitcoin Foundation in some way. I don't want to say who it is in case he wants to be anonymous, but, um, and I can't even really imagine why he would want to be, but he said, I had to chuckle a little bit when Brian equated the Bitcoin Foundation with the greatest evil of all time. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a big misunderstanding in the community about what the foundation really is and how organizing some efforts is not equivalent to controlling a community census-driven, or sorry, to controlling a community consensus-driven project. People never seem too threatened by centralization on account of the Bitcoin Education Project, yet education has been a major function of the Bitcoin Foundation, especially education of people employed by governments. I'm curious what people fear about the foundation. Is it the presumption that the foundation controls the network, the code, the development? It does none of those things, nor could it. At worst, the foundation is a paper tiger. At best, it's a way for us to pool resources to achieve desirable outcomes for member issues. Such issues have been mostly legal slash regulatory, but have had a big impact on the exchange rate. So, Brian, what's your problem with the Bitcoin foundation? (laughs) What's the big deal? Uh, Some of those things I... I I'll say I was under the impression. Um, I still think it may be somewhat true uh, that they were into some degree of control. Uh, I mean, if you hold the purse strings to who's paying the developers, I feel like which apparently the Bitcoin Foundation does. Now, maybe I completely misunderstood the mission statement, uh, but I, I don't know that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would I would agree with you there. Actually, I I think that there. 
there's got to be some control over the development because they're choosing who to pay, right? Right. They're, they're paying certain developers. Right. And there are people who have contributed code to Bitcoin that aren't getting paid by the foundation. Right. right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so it's also, and actually I, I was so happy to hear that I wasn't the only one saying this. I've been saying this for some time, uh, as in two years ago. Okay, but I'm glad to start hearing people now. There was uh, Oliver Jansen, I think his name was, who said, who, who really wrapped it up perfectly, saying, you're using an archaic system like a foundation, okay, you know, which is based on whatever, some kind of community or democratic process or something. Maybe I shouldn't say community. Uh, it's a to, political organization. Yeah, it is. It, it's the way it's set up is political, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and you're using that to try and bring forward change in something that the world has never experienced. And uh, I also heard in Washington, D.C., I heard uh, um, uh, Hawk, mm -hmm. Xavier Hawk, Xavier Hawk, he said the same thing. He says they're, they're basing this on a, on a, they're, they're using a legacy system to somehow steer a, you know, a technology that has no legacy. Mm-hmm. Okay. You said that about the Bitcoin Foundation? Yes. Okay. Yeah, at, at a, during a talk that we caught. Yeah. And it was a really good talk, actually. By the but, way, there is a Permacredits Foundation. Xavier Hawk is in the permaculture world, and right. he's got a project that he's working on called Permacredits, which is um, basically a, a community kind of asset that supports permaculture through crowdfunding kind of initiatives and um, reward sharing in response to that. Right. That's like, it's, it's really hard to summarize just in a couple of sentences, but there is a permacredits foundation that does that like issues permacredits twice a year on the solstices, which right. is kind of cool. It's connected to the earth. Yeah. Man. Uh, it's the earth man. Um, <laughs> but he described their, their foundation as janitors. Like they're just doing sort of an administrative function. They're, they're really not meant to have any purpose except like what, the the things that a computer absolutely yeah, can't do right you know? and and with permacredits they actually have kind of a decentralized social network that really makes all the decisions mm -hmm. uh which i you know that's an interesting way of doing things that's using new technologies with a new technology to try and you know maybe steer it or get it to where people want it to go mm -hmm. and now the reason i can safely say i said this two years ago first off it's on it's on a recording that's available on the internet okay but the reason Where is, is it available uh sovereigntech.com that's S -O -V -R -Y -N. your podcast yeah it's like the second special i did it's all about bitcoin anyway got some points wrong in it but i wasn't wrong about this because on the bitcoin foundation's website two years ago it said or almost two years ago it said you know, people are asking, what are you here for? Why do you exist? Why does the Bitcoin Foundation exist? And the response was, we don't know what to do about W-2s. We don't know, you know, how to tax mm. our people that we pay in Bitcoins. And look right there. I fundamentally disagree with you. You don't tax it at all. Who cares about taxes? You know, and that's the beauty of Bitcoin is that well, it's made up. Of, I guess the Bitcoin Foundation would be made up of people who do care about taxes. Because there's a yeah. lot of industry Bitcoin company members, yeah, people. Sorry, people who have large in the system Bitcoin companies, right? Um, who do who do have those issues and are like, how are we gonna tax people? How are we gonna comply with the exactly. regulations? And they care about that stuff, but not all Bitcoin users do. 
especially at the right. beginning, especially in the very beginning, that was mostly people who were like, taxes? Are you serious? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and I mean, look, there's good people at the Bitcoin Foundation. This guy is is open to questioning, so it sounds like he's a good guy. Yeah. Uh, I think John Matonis is a great guy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm not saying everybody's evil, but look, this is an international, this is a global currency. I like the word global better than international because I don't recognize borders. Okay. Um, but this is a global currency. Why, why recognize the border of the planet? Let's go for the solar system. It's yeah. a it's a universal currency. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be in space yeah. soon. Anyway. Well, it will be. Okay. So guess what? How can you possibly, and people love it because it's a global currency. How can you have a global currency if one country wants to do change the rules on it? And the Bitcoin Foundation is specifically about how do we get this text in their own words. Okay. And so you are killing something that's global because you're making it local all right and that's really what you're doing so and please understand my anger is is in the abstract it's not directed at you uh emailer okay <laughs> what about the argument that for bitcoin to grow and become mainstream there are going to have to be those companies out there that um, jump through all the regulatory hoops and they have to know what to do if they're going to grow and survive um, so, you know, they're not necessarily saying that the average Bitcoin user should be forking over their Bitcoins to the government or anything like that. They're just trying to help these businesses grow and kind of do what everybody needs to do to protect themselves in this um, crazy messed up world we have where government is has its hands in everything. Well, that argument falls apart under the fact that Bitcoin got where it is today because nothing was in its way. If nothing was in the way of these businesses, they could get where they need to go. They don't need help. They need you to get out of the way. That's what everything needs from children to businesses. They don't need you to give them a hand. They just need you to get out of the way and let them live. Nature will take care of everything. It always does. Hmm. What about the pooling resources argument that the listener makes? I'm And I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here oh, yeah, and, yeah. and going on his email. But, yeah. um, you know, I think this is an important discussion to have. So I do too. You know, and, and we're not trying to insult anyone nope. or anything like that. But... Uh, what about this argument that, you know, it's just the interests of Bitcoin users or the interests of members, perhaps, and it's a way for them to get their resources together and do stuff that's important to them? What do you think about that? Uh, if if that's the case, I, I, I'm, I'm not following. I'm sorry. Well, he the emailer said, you know, it's it's just a way for us to get together and achieve desirable outcomes for member issues. Well, it's it's an archaic way of doing that. Okay. It's what you need to, to do is let's look into voting systems within the blockchain itself that will really let the community choose what they want. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, not, not through this, not through what you've got going on. Mm. You know, I have to say something about this, this whole issue of uh, the Bitcoin mailing list. I remember there was this conversation we had in Toronto on let's talk Bitcoin where we're sitting in this room and, um, you know, me and Adam and Andreas were there, the normal hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin. And we were joined by Amir Taki. And we we're talking about like, if you have an idea for Bitcoin that you want to get implemented into the code, how do you go about doing that? Like, what what were, would the steps be? And Andreas says, well, you just join the developer mailing list and you suggest your idea and people discuss it. And then they kind of put it to the community. Oh, and yeah, maybe that's by the people for the people. <laughs> well, it just, it felt like a political process. Exactly. To me, you know, and, and Amir was saying like, well, look, I've, I got kicked off the Bitcoin mailing list or yeah. I'm not even able to be on it. So how do I suggest code? And what if someone doesn't like your code? What do you do then? You know, right. and how do you go around them? And so, and personally, I, 
the the Bitcoin developer mailing list is just something that's a little over my head. I just I just it's not accessible to me. Sure. You know, mailing lists in general, I try to keep the volume of my email down as much as possible because I get a lot of emails and I can't really deal with more, especially a high volume list. Uh, but just in general, the discussion there, I can't follow it because I don't have the technical background, really. Um, and so what am I supposed to do if I have some kind of idea? Do I find a coder and get them to lobby for it? Like, it just felt like it almost felt like Andreas was making this argument like where you know, if well, if you want to change the system, you got to lobby your representatives and got to get them to bring a bill and then you got to vote on no, it. No, no, no. Yeah, no. And that's that's no. what I want to get away from. No. Right? And, and you know, <laughs> we can do better than that. Right. And and there's proof of this. And the proof comes from uh, BTCD, Bitcoin D. OK, where they had a system they wanted. They wanted their payment system to go both ways. OK. They couldn't do it with the Bitcoin code available. So they wrote their own client. They wrote a whole new client in the Go language. As oh, to you're where talking the original, about CoinVoice. Yeah, CoinVoice. Yeah. Same company, mm -hmm. same deal. Okay. They rewrote their whole client. There is no, when you want something done, there is no bureaucracy you should have to go through. And that's what that is. Call it, fine. You can give it a shiny name. Okay. Like foundation. That's bureaucracy. All right. Or you can say it's a mailing list. It's open to everybody. No, Amir Taki got kicked off. It's not open to everybody. All right. Well, there's some people dispute that he got kicked off, but you know, I, regardless, like or it's not if it's, right. it's not unfathomable that right. someone might get kicked off this list for whatever reason, you know. Right, and I mean, and then people are going to say, well, you know, you're just you're going to write a million different things, and then there's not going to be, you know, nobody can get anything done because everything's so completely decentralized it can't happen. Uh, and I think that argument doesn't hold up. You know, the internet came out of hundreds of TCP/IP implementations. Not one. It came out of hundreds. There is no argument for this. So your problem, if I were to sum it up, I would say it's a centralized. You, you don't like the centralization. Basically. Of anything. Yeah. Yeah. And then people will be like, well, what about time? Don't you want that as a standard? Oh, come on. <laughs> Give me a break. Is that like, what about the clothes? What about it's the like, winter? What about the roads? What, what about, it's like, stop. What about the okay? cold from the last episode? Yeah. <laughs> Well, we are out of time. Oh, this is if been a time was such a great standard, there'd be a quantum clock, <laughs> and there, nobody would want to build the quantum clock, and now they do. Anyway. Well, emailer, I don't know if we've answered your question, but I mean, I thank you for being your thank you for your curiosity. Yes, thank uh, you. I agree. <laughs> Brian has given you a lot to chew on there. So, if you have any more comments, feel welcome to send them to us again. Show at sexandsciencehour.com. We'll see you next time. You've just heard Sex and Science Hour. Game over. Play again next week.